Inside your program is a sermon outline. Please take it out. It will be helpful to you as you follow along and as you read the scriptures with me this morning. We've been studying together the names of Jesus throughout the Advent season, and in particular, four names that are given in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. One verse with four great names. Listen to then the scriptures, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And then Christmas Eve, we'll do the last one. You'll have to wait. Spoiler alert. It's Prince of Peace. Now, as we begin, as you remember this prophecy, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, there is darkness over the land of Israel. And you recall that the army of Assyria has conquered the north, and the gloom of death sends sends fear and darkness over Jerusalem. And the people of God have rebelled against God. They have denied Him. And there is now darkness in the land. And then Isaiah says, But the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Light will come to the land one day. And you and I know Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. We believe this messianic prophecy was fulfilled in the time of Jesus, the Messiah. But who is this one, this child who will be born? Who is this one, this son who will be given? Who is he? And Isaiah answers that by telling us of his names, names given to him. And the contrast in these names is stunning. Last week, we looked at Wonderful Counselor. And we saw that indeed in the life of Jesus Christ is found all the best wisdom any counselor could ever want with empathy and sympathy. And he is revealed as someone who can rightly shepherd his people. He's the Wonderful Counselor. But now these next two names are striking and they contrast with each other. He is the mighty God, everlasting Father. And if you get a handle, if you camp out on these adjectives and nouns that describe the name of this Messiah, you see in this marvelous revelation that He will be the mighty God. What does that refer to? His deity. And the church through the centuries has always affirmed not just that Jesus is the Son of God, but that He is God the Son. And the word everlasting, it refers to His infinity. And these are words of transcendence, of glory, of beyond this world. But then the next word says He's like a father, like a father. And that refers to His intimacy. 
So the former is talking about his transcendence. The, the latter is talking about his imminence. And I wonder how much you know about these two things. Because I have to be honest, I talk to a lot of people about God. I love to talk to people about God. And what I discover is that for so many people, when they talk about God, they talk about God with a little g, a little g. They talk about man, they talk about man with a capital M. And that is our culture, we are products of the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment said we are here, the scholar said we are here to learn that man is the measure of all things. We are free from the superstitions about God. And so any discussion of God is relegated to a God with a lower G. Let me ask, is the God that you talk about the God who's revealed himself in the Bible? I talk to atheists, and uh, they say, I don't believe in God. I say, well, okay. Would you please describe for me the God you don't believe in? And by the time they're done describing that God, I say, well, I don't believe in him either. And the God you described isn't the God of the Bible. It's very important. You know, we show respect to our atheist friends, but we don't let them get away with mischaracterizing the living and true God. I don't believe about in believing that whatever figment of your imagination you think that you don't believe in. <laughs> Got that? You see? But Christian, I worry about Christians. What do you believe about God? Because so many people think about their God as puny, shriveled. They think of Jesus as puny, shriveled. Or even if they believe in him, they believe he's so far away that he's just not relevant to my life at all, you see. And, you know, I just have to tell you, I'll be frank and honest with you, There are times when my prayer life gets so stale. Is there anything more disappointing than biting into a dinner roll and finding out that it's stale? You know, that's awful. When the roll is stale, it's hard, it's dry, it doesn't taste good. My prayer life can get like that. Even my worship of God can become perfunctory, you know, and, and shallow. And what I find is that when my heart gets hard and, my, and my, uh, uh, my eyes are dry and I have no emotion at all for the things of God, it's usually because I've fallen into one of two problems. Either God has become puny to me or God seems so far away and so distant that he's not relevant in my life. And it's precisely at this point that I need to remember what Isaiah taught us. That our God is the mighty God. He is transcendent and glorious. And he is the God who comes close to his people. Please get your arms around this this morning. The scripture foreshadows this amazing contrast, transcendence and imminence all over the place. If you look at Psalm 113, right there in your program, David begins with a, sent- with a question. Who is like our God? 
See, it's a very good question. Okay, who is like our God? There are, there are people with all kinds of opinions of God. The Muslim God, over a billion people, claim to be Muslims. Now, we, we show respect for Muslims. We show love to Muslims. But their sense of God is that he is high and indeed transcendent, but he's so far away, he's other, he's unknowable. Or we have what you call pantheistic friends, Native American religion. Native American religion, we show respect, we show kindness to people who have a different religion from you. I hope you know that. And yet, pantheism, pan means all, theos means God. Pantheism teaches that God is everything. God is the creation. There is no creator-creature distinction. You just worship the rocks and the mountains. You worship the oceans and the flower. That's pantheism. The psalmist says, who is like the Lord our God? And then he gives this astounding answer in this next verse. He says, our God is seated on high and lifted up. He says, our God is seated on high and lifted up, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. Did you catch that? God is so high and so great that he must, uh, one translation says, stoop to look down at the heavens, at the galaxies. That's how great it is. The galaxies, hundreds and billions of galaxies filling the universe, and God is so great, he has to bend way over to look at the galaxies. Transcendent. And yet, look at how that verse finishes. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap and makes them sit with princes. This same God comes all the way down to the junkyard. He comes down to the junkyard to, to broken lives, to needy and hurting people, alone, barren, struggling, afraid, and he comes to them and he lifts them up. That is our God, transcendent and imminent. Look at Isaiah 57, verse 15. The stunning contrast once again. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. And so here is the high and holy God, pure, pristine, glorious unmarked by any wickedness and he sees you and he sees me and I discover that I am arrogant and I discover lust in my heart and greed in my soul and and I mean to another person and the Holy Spirit graciously convicts me of my sin shows me my sin and I am contrite and the transcendent God comes close to the contrite, the one who discovers their sin, sorrows over it, turns from it, 
and he revives my soul. And in place of pride, he brings some humility. In place of lust, he brings honor. In place of greed, he brings generosity. He brings newness of life. That is our God. He comes close to the heart of the contrite. There's a verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 30, verse 4. I tell you, I don't really understand this verse, okay? I've thought about it a lot. I don't quite understand because Proverbs is not really about the doctrine of God so much. And yet, there's this verse. It says, Who has ascended to heaven and come down. Somehow, God, he realizes, ascends to heaven and comes down. Who has gathered the wind in his fists. Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment. Who has established all the ends of the earth. What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Wow. His son's name is Jesus. And so my very first point, my friends, is that every one of us, every one of you, when your prayer life becomes like mine and it gets stale, what we need is this contrast, these two great realities. Listen, I'm not telling you to balance the transcendence and closeness of God's. I don't want to balance them, make them. I want them to be grand and great on both sides of the seesaw. And you experience the, what did Norman Schwarzkopf call it when, when they did uh, Operation Desert Storm? Shock and awe. Shock and awe. That you behold God in his majesty and glory. And you behold the God who comes close to you and loves you. And when you camp out, and we're going to do this right now, as you savor these things, your heart gets enlarged, your spirit is renewed. Point number two, I ask you, do you know about this mighty God? Do you celebrate, really, in your heart, find yourself delighting in and rejoicing in his transcendence, holiness, infinity, here's a new word, aseity, and eternity. Think about it. Think about it. If, do, do you know these things about God? Remember our atheist friend, if he says, I don't believe in God, well, if he doesn't believe, you know, d- but does he know the character of the God he doesn't believe in? Transcendent, holy, uh, self-existent, eternal, infinite. You've got to know these things. Here's why. If your best friend, who's your best friend? If your bre- best friend said, hmm, what do people, what do you tell people about me? Suppose you just said, well, I tell them, you're a man. A homo sapien. That's what I tell them. How would your best friend feel if that's the best you could do in describing your, him accurately to somebody else? See, that's why you need to know the self-revelation of God. These need to be vocabulary words, transcendent. All that means is that he is outside of us and above us. It means that God is beyond us. And do you appreciate this? You see, it's God is not with a small g. He's with a large g. And if I can encourage you with anything today, it's this. Have a high view of God. Think high thoughts of your God and your Savior. 
the excellencies of him. He is transcendent. What else should you know about God? His holiness. It's a cousin to transcendence. But holiness refers to his purity, to his beauty, that he is clean, that he is righteous. Let me ask you about the mightiest beings in the universe. What are they doing right now? Do you know? Mightiest created beings, they are called seraphim. Seraphim. Have you heard of the seraphim? Do you know where they are? I'll tell you where they are. We're told in the book of Isaiah. The seraphim fly around the throne of God, even as we speak, forever and ever. And these glorious beings cry out, Holy, 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 day and night, they never stop crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And these seraphim, we are told, have, this is interesting, six wings, six wings. And with two wings, they cover their eyes. With two wings, they cover their feet. And with the other two wings, they fly. For God dwells in unapproachable light. His holiness is pristine and pure. And then we learn of God, this mighty God, that he is self-existent. The, the word, this vocabulary word, it's a good word, is aseity, aseity. And this simply means that God does not need any other creature to survive. You, 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 some of you taught your children the shorter catechism. First question in the shorter catechism, who made me? Answer, God made me. What is every child's next question? Who made God? Answer, nobody made God. God is self-existent. This is his aseity. He's not dependent on us. Now, this is important because in our post-enlightenment era, there are scholars, who, psychologists, they would say that the existence of God is predicated upon and depends upon the faith of the people. And if the faith of the people evaporates, then God will be gone. When I was a child, I saw an episode of the movie Peter Pan. It was Mary Martin played Peter Pan. It's an old, old version. Beautiful story. And in the midst of the story, there's this character named Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell's a little fairy, a supernatural creature. And Tinkerbell does all kinds of powerful things, but in the story, Tinkerbell begins to die. Tinkerbell begins to fade and evaporate, and she's almost dead because nobody believes in her. And if you've ever seen the film, Mary Martin, Peter Pan says, the children need to believe. The children need to believe so that Tinkerbell will regain her strength and come back and will be alive and powerful again. And she looks into the camera and says, children, do you believe? And every child is watching is saying, well, I don't want Tinkerbell to die. Yes, yes, I believe. And Tinkerbell gets strong again. Now listen, God is not like Tinkerbell. The aseity of God is taught in the scriptures. Psalm 90, it says, before the mountains were formed, God, God established the mountains, you see. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is outside of time. He is self-existent and independent. And he's eternal. Again, before the mountains were born or you brought forth the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is eternal. Now, here's the kicker, the Christmas kicker. Every one of these truths about God is applied to Jesus Christ. Did you know that? In the Bible, John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is his transcendence and his infinity and his deity right there in that sentence. And in John 8, 58, you have one of these power moments, this pulse of the deity of Jesus Christ in John 8, 58, when he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what's going on here? What is this I am business? And it goes back to the book of Exodus in chapter 3 where Moses meets God in the burning bush. Do you remember that? There in the burning bush, he says, take off your sandals. You know, this is holy ground. So Jesus is identifying himself as the holy one. And then Moses says, well, who should I tell them is speaking and who sends me? And the answer, do you recall? I am that I am. Again, the transcendent God, the self-existent God who has stepped in to speak to Moses. I am has sent you. And the eternity of Jesus in Revelation 117 in, in chapter 21, 22, verse 13, we see that Jesus is, calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He exists outside the dimension of time in his glory. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is what we savor. How do you respond to Jesus who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Well, John the Apostle, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Isaiah beholds him in his glory, chapter 6. He says, woe is me, I am undone. As you talk to a psychologist, he says, a person is disintegrating or falling apart. I am undone. Ezekiel said, I saw his glory covering the land and I fell face down. Shock and awe at the transcendent, majestic, glorious God. The shepherds were out in their fields abiding, their flocks minding their own business. And suddenly the glory of the Lord shocks them, takes them into a state of awe. This is your God. This, my friends, is your Savior. And yet, at the same time, right on the heels of the name Mighty God is this name Father. And it speaks of this messianic character who comes with imminence, closeness, personal presence. 
this one who will carry the government on his shoulders, is like a father. Now, Isaiah is not confused about the Trinity. He's not talking about the Trinity here. He's talking about the character of the Lord who is going to come, like in Psalm 103, verse 13, where it says, you know that verse, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Now, what does a father do? A father provides for, a father protects, a father prays for, a father blesses his children. And so this Messiah who is to come will have these, these qualities of a parent, of intimate welcome. You see, is this your experience now of the same God? Now, listen carefully here. With all the ink that's been spilled in the Washington Post this week and that's flashing across the, the Internet, it's, it's, it is very interesting, this discussion of the question, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? It's a fair question because it's just out there uh, on, on, on every news channel and every newspaper and, and on the op-eds. And, and I want to say this right up front. So listen carefully, North Shore Community Church. I believe we should and are called by God to live peacefully, respectfully, and graciously to our Muslim friends and neighbors, colleagues, maybe even family members. I believe that the members of our church should comport themselves with grace and decorum with whomever we speak, showing love and respect. But I do have to say that we cannot simply say that we worship the same God out of the pressure of political correctness in our day. And there are people who want to say, well, we need to stand in religious solidarity with people of other faiths. And I say, no, you can love a person and still disagree with a person. Isn't that true? You can love a person and respectfully disagree with them. And so it's not helpful to simply say we worship the same God when it's so patently clear and patently obvious that the God of the scriptures is not merely transcendent and unknowable, but that he is imminent and close and has come to us in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And it is the Trinity that is blasphemy to their ears and to their eyes. And so you need to know that the imminence of God disqualifies us from saying, and you know, you read in the Washington Post, oh yes, but, but there are, he calls it, he calls it sufficient similarities. And then we have to say, just because you can use a couple of the same terms does not mean that it has the same meaning. And if the Trinity is blasphemy, we say the Trinity, the incarnation, the closeness and the knowability of this great God is something we must insist upon that is true and is lovingly offered to anyone to, to know him. But you must show respect, okay? 
You must show love. You must overcome them with grace, okay? But political correctness does not rule the day because our God is everlasting Father. We are told in Galatians 4, 7 and 8 that he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer slaves, but son. Christianity is drawing humanity into a, into a new family of love with intimate knowledge of God the Heavenly Father. And that's what Jesus brings. Who is this son who is given? Who is this mighty God to be born? It is Jesus Christ. And so there is that's the point of the whole sermon. There is shock and awe for the mighty God. And there is closeness and intimacy with the heavenly Father. This is the beauty of our Christian faith. And he comes so close, so close, that Paul says in Colossians 1.27 that the glorious mystery of God is Christ in you the hope of glory. Christ in you. He takes up residence in your heart. The God of the universe takes up residence in your heart. This is the mystery of godliness. This is what changes our lives. This hard heart of mine. These, this cold heart of mine. What can possibly change it? And the answer I read an article by John Freeman this week in the Harvest USA News. It was a beautiful discussion of how people change. And he said it boils down to union and communion with Jesus Christ. I love this. Union, communion. Do you know these two words? Union means by faith you are united. We'll get back into Romans and January, we talk about this explicitly. Union means you're connected to him in his death and resurrection, and so your standing before him is clean and pure. You are welcome because of your union with Jesus Christ, but the, the better part is ongoing communion with him. He who has invaded your life, the life of Christ in you, the Holy Spirit in you, and it's hour by hour, not just on Sundays. It's, it's day by day. Year after year, how do I find this? To all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right, word is exousia, it's, the, it, the, it's dunamis, from which we get dynamite, the, the right to become children of God. And it's everlasting. Maybe there's someone here today who says, Pastor John, I used to believe and I don't know why I'm here today. My wife made me come. My husband made me come. My parents made me come. You don't know how far I've fallen away from Jesus. His name is everlasting. He will never give up on you. He does not give up on you. He does not put you on hold. He does not say three strikes and you're out. His love for you is everlasting. Everlasting. Through, through sickness, through death, to the other side of death, everlasting into eternity. So, instead of being stale, instead of your God being puny, I worry that someone here 
have a picture of God that is puny. I worry that someone here has a picture of God that's far away. Instead of that, come to the mighty God, the everlasting Father, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life so that the transcendent holy God could welcome you in and at the cross made atonement for your sins and brings you home to God. That's how it happened. The incarnation was necessary because the cross was necessary. And he brings you to the heavenly Father. Oh, join us, join us Christmas Eve. The shepherds were out in the fields Shock and awe fell upon them. And the angel said, do not be afraid. Let's pray. Our Father, although you are glorious and transcendent and perfectly pure, O Lord, you are always close. And you come and you bring these fatherly realities into our lives, and nothing can separate us from your love. Those of us who have a puny picture of you, we are sorry. Yenchko's words are insufficient to reveal your glory. Oh, Holy Spirit, show to each of us how great and glorious you are. And forgive us when we dismiss you as irrelevant and far away. Forgive me, for you are close. You have come. You have taken up residence in our lives, we who believe. And we pray we would feel, we would know, we would enjoy, and we would savor your presence and closeness to us. Thank you for the cross where we stand forgiven and welcome. In Jesus' name, amen.